Well, last week, if you remember, uh, we talked about a little bit about the benefits uh, of prophecy. And we saw that it encourages us. Um, we put to death or put to one side the, uh, the excessive, you know, the extreme and uh, the, the stupendousness of prophecy. We put to one side the fear that it can bring. Uh, I hope we did anyway. And uh, we saw that it is for our encouragement. Um, you know, and I suppose in our day and age, looking at the situation that we're in, we need all the encouragement we can get. Because nothing out there encourages us at all. Mm. You know, I should imagine the World Cup will be okay now this year. <laughs> uh, because we prayed for the World Cup. <laughs> uh, but, even, but even the Welsh team haven't encouraged us this week. Um, it informs us. You know, gives us some idea of what God is doing. In the, and of course it builds us up uh, in the faith. It, it, it engenders faith within us. Uh, because we can look at how God has um, come through with prophecy in the past. And uh, we know that the prophecy that are to come are 100% certain of happening. Uh, and therefore we can, uh, we've got hope. You know, it imparts wisdom to us, we saw last week. To, um, to our life choices, um, we make decisions on the prophetic word of God, mm-hmm. or we should do, because we can trust the one who is uh, who has spoken. Mm-hmm. Um, prophecy. I, I got down with a few other things that prophecy would do for us. Let's see this is you know. Prophecy, uh, true prophecy, biblical prophecy, gives us a, a greater understanding of the omniscience of God. No wonder the good thing about prophecy, it tells us that God knows everything. And not only does he know everything, but he knows the end from the beginning. You know, and our comfort in that is when we realize that the future to us uh, is a closed book. It's, you know, we know nothing at all about the future. I said last week that uh, the prophets of doom and the, uh, and the people, uh, who, Mystic Meg and all them, they've got a, a 7% grip on the future, which is no more than you and I could have. We can make guesses about what's going to happen in the future. But God knows what's going to happen in the future. He knows what's going to happen tonight. He, he knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And how comforting is that? When we think that to us the future is a closed book and something that's a closed book to us in that way can be so ominous and play in our minds. Oh, what if? What about? What if this happens? But to know that the future itself is inhabited by the omniscient God who loves us and is working out his purposes for us. You know, there's an old saying, I've, I, I, I say it's an old saying, I've only heard it the last couple of weeks. <laughs> uh, but, I, but it's this, uh, those that are depressed are living in the past, whereas those who are anxious are living in the future. But those who know the omniscient and God live quite peacefully in the present. Now, and I thought that's, you know, I've added a little bit in the back uh, at the end. Because uh, I found the other bit on, I think I have anyway. Well, that's not a way that I've seen it. 
and you've got to take what's there and, and add to it. Those that are depressed are living in the past, of course, which is right. Whereas those who are anxious are living in the future. But those who know the omniscient God uh, live quite peacefully in the present. Uh, but of course, prophecy always also gives us an understanding of the sovereignty of God. You know, and um, the fact that this is his word. Now that might upset Richard Dawkins. But it doesn't upset me. To know that this is his word. This is his plan. This is his moment. You know, and yes, I know that there, over the years there's been pretenders who think otherwise, as we've heard tonight. But they come and they go. You know, and uh, if we were to live another 50 years, then Richard Dawkins would have gone, and another Richard Dawkins would have come on the scene with totally different ideas of how everything holds together. They come and they go. They try to thwart and to spoil the, the, the purposes of God, but in doing so, they uphold, as David said, or as he said when he read the psalm. They think that they are thwarting God's purposes, and yet there he stands or sits in heaven, laughs at them, and just allows his purposes to overflow. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful psalm, that is. Uh, this is the, there's a man called John Machen, um, a Christian writer, and this is what he says. Uh, Wicked men may not realize that they are serving God's purposes, but they are serving God's purposes all the same. And even the most wicked of their, even by the most wicked of their acts. You know, and yes, we look at the world and we might think, yes, it's going to the dogs. Has God lost control? Has he, has he dropped the reins? Has he dropped the button? Um, is he in a mess? Have we overtaken him? Have Satan outflanked him? It's going to the dogs and it's driven by the wickedness of man. But rest assured, prophecy would give us an assurance that God has got it all worked out. No need to worry. No need to get alarmed. God has got it all worked out. And do you know that even Hitler furthered the plans of God. In doing what he did, he hastened the homecoming of the Jews. You know, so he furthered. You know, he was instrumental in bringing God's prophetic words to pass in our time. It's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. But prophecy always also gives us an understanding of the omnipotence of God. No, it's great when um, you can leave big things to God. You know, Pauline was, um, we were in uh, Corfu and then quite a number of years ago now, 20 odd years ago, 25 <laughs> years ago, when we were young and jumping about. And um, we, we were in there, and I was, I was ministering there, we, you know, and we were uh, in a service, and um, Pauline had some kind of experience with the Lord. And uh, the experience, 
she saw a dog chasing its tail and uh, saw the futility of doing that. And the Lord said, just leave the big things to me. Well, just leave it all to me. It was tail isn't a big thing, is it? Leave it all to me. There's no need to worry. Mm-hmm. I am the omnipotent mm-hmm. God. The omnipotent. And it's great to know that we can uh, leave those big things to God because we know that He has the ability to c- accomplish what we can't. Mm-hmm. He's got grand designs. But of course, grand designs and plans and purposes are only relevant if you have the muscle to carry them out. You know, and uh, opponents and rivals and enemies are committed to you a failure uh, in all the things that God has called you to do. But God is yet to fail. He's omnipotent. Nothing can become too strong for him. He has the ultimate muscle. And he is not afraid to flex it in response to any attack upon his plans, upon his uh, purposes, or upon his people. He's there with that great big nose. Um, Lily got some muscles, mine. Uh, my granddaughter, she's, she's, uh, of course she's a gymnast. <laughs> and uh, she told me this week or last week that after 10 lessons, she's going to be able to teach <laughs> gymnastics. And she very often flexes and the muscle that comes up there is incredible. But God has got a bigger muscle than even Lily has. <laughs> you know, we saw last week that Satan is committed to destroy uh, Israel. Uh, we heard the prayer tonight for Israel. And uh, yes, we need to pray for them, pray for the peace of Jerusalem and, and things like that. Uh, but Satan is... Um, committed to destroy Israel because in destroying Israel well you will also destroy the reputation of God if Israel is ever removed from that place where they are now then we have to doubt God mm-hmm. doubt his word doubt his omnipotence uh, doubt his reputation and that's and as I said last week Israel becomes for God the weakest link there Satan will try mm-hmm. you know we know that Russia and, and Iran and um, some other country, Syria, I think. Mm. They have the leaders of that, those three nations have met this week. Mm. And you can bet your bottom dollar that Israel was on the agenda. And you can always also bet your bottom dollar that if the UN are sitting tonight, they're talking about Israel. Because that's all they ever talk about. Mm. Because the old world, or not the old world, but uh, Satan has his people in the world that are dedicated to destroying Israel. But... I refer you uh, to the completion of the British mandate in 1948. When the, when the British left Israel, Israel were on their own. They had no weapons. No weapons whatsoever. And as soon as the British left, the Arab nations rose up to destroy this fledgling nation. And they failed miserably. How? How on earth can you fight three on three sides without any weapons? And yet those three nations, or those nations that surrounded them, lost ground to the Jews. You know, some of us here can remember the Six-Day War. 
when again Israel was attacked and you know the subtlety of the enemy they attacked on Yom Kippur which is the day when everyone was well out of work just relaxing and, and doing all the things that you do on Yom Kippur you know and Egypt came across uh, the desert and Jordan came over the river and uh, Syria came over the mountain you know this great uh, block of of uh, nations to destroy Israel, you know, and the only and Israel pushed Egypt back to the Red Sea, pushed Jordan back over the Jordan, and pushed Syria back over the Golanites, and Israel doubled in size. <laughs> they doubled in size. In fact, there was nothing stopping Israel from annexing both Egypt. Syria and Jordan other than they chose to stop advancing you know you'd think that the Arabs would get the message that Israel as a champion on their side that no power on earth could ever overcome so prophecy if prophecy is beneficial prophecy is exciting Prophecy is enlightening. So if prophecy is so powerful, and if prophecy is so beneficial, and if prophecy so confirms the supernatural character of the Bible, and if prophecy is so accurate and shows us how history will plan out, pan out, then why on earth do we not make more of it? Why aren't we shouting it from the rooftops? You know, it's a good question. I hope I've got the answer. Because the answer is, we have an enemy. And the enemy of our souls has done his best and in many ways has succeeded in dumbing down prophecy. Dumbing down prophecy. You see, critics of the scripture have put into the minds of Christians as well as non-Christians that the Bible actually contains no supernatural uh, traits whatsoever and that prophecy is nothing more than a scam and a sham and Christians real good genuine born again Christians by and large are unable unwilling or uneasy about standing up and proclaiming the prophetic nature of the scriptures and defending its prophetic message and that's a shame that's a shame that's a defeat in one way or another that uh, Satan can so dumb down prophecy but he's got some allies because alongside this brutal attack uh, on the sovereignty of God, I mean, I mean, in the and the sovereignty and of and the authenticity of the scriptures, we have the modern church with its false prophecies, its astounding, outlandish prophetic claims. You know, and these every time this happens, whenever the church says something outlandish and has no biblical basis for it then what all it does is muddy the water. 
you know, and um, it makes people like you and me afraid to dip our toes into this murky mess that the modern church is making of it. You know, and it's a shame because we shoot ourselves in the foot very often as a modern church because we say things from the top of our heads. You know, and an awful lot of today's modern prophecy is wishful thinking. It's, look at me, I'm saying this type of thing. And because we have it, and of course the God channels that we have, they are, they are rife with this type of stuff. And uh, an, an awful lot of it is total nonsense. And people looking on in the church and out of the church are thinking, well, get it together, will you? Get it together because you are making a mess on a mockery of what God has put in His Word. You know, alongside this we have a catalogue of failed attempts to date the second coming of Christ. Now David is hoping that it will come tonight. Seventh-day Adventists, the Anabaptist Church, the Anglican Church, Assemblies of God, Calvary Chapel, Brethren, or the Brethren, Jehovah's Witnesses, Lutheran Church, Mormons, Mennonites, Montanists, the Presbyterian Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and Pastor Clark from Neath, they've all had a little pop at it. See, it's tempting. It's tempting when you do this study like this because you can see things and think, wow. And you can think, I got the date. <laughs> I got it. And of course, you should keep it to yourself. <laughs> Even if you find it, I got it. And of course, because you got it, pride will fit and you're going to say, it's going to be. It's going to be. And all those people, and there's 13, I just counted 13, plus Pastor Clark, uh, who didn't, who sort of, he said, not the tape off, he said, I got a date for you. (laughs) (laughs) They were taping this, not the tape off, I got a date for you, which was in the 80s. Which, of course, wasn't, uh, of course, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, or I think it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim that he came secretly. They, they ful- he fulfilled their prophecy, but he came secretly, which is a load of nonsense, of course. But they've all had a little go, and I hope I don't fall into the same trap as we go on, because I'm getting close. <laughs> but they've all done untold damage, I think, to the concept of biblical prophecy. You know, alongside that, of course, we have uh, the marketplace charlatans uh, who set up their tents on our rice street in our markets and peddle their sweet and comforting nonsense that so appeals to the troubled world of our time and sanitizes them from the brutal truth of God's wrath. They have also put their penny within that muddies the water. Can you see now why we are reluctant to stand up and say, this is going to happen or that is going to happen. God said this, God said that. It's because of so many things that have gone on that we uh, that we're afraid to get up and say. So Satan has done a good job, unfortunately, and it perhaps it's time that we shook ourselves and shook off the 
the stigma that has been sent around prophecy and start being prophetic people. Now we're going to come later on, not, not for a while, but we're going to come to the book of Daniel. And uh, when you come to the book of Daniel, as we know, because we've done the book of Daniel and uh, a number of years ago, we're going to see the most, the most accurate, amazing, mind-blowing set of prophecies written by him in Babylon during the 6th century BC. No, and he's going to speak. We'll see that he will speak about a situation that will take place some 400 years later. And when we look at that, you know, we, our minds will be blown. Because when we look at Daniel's prophecy, it will be more clearer and more detailed and more accurate than if you and I were to go and read a report of it. That's how wonderful this prophecy is. It's absolutely mind-blowing and it is so detailed and accurate that it would have been better to read that than to be an eyewitness account, an eyewitness of it. Now you can imagine my delight during the summer when I opened up Facebook and there staring me in the face was a 10-week course on the prophecies of Daniel being offered to me free. Did they offer it to you? No, they offered it to you, John? They must have known that I was going to do this uh, in, the, in the autumn. Ten week course <coughs> on the prophecies of Daniel free. And you know this lady professor she sat in front of me and offered me a place on this discovery or this journey of discovery. She seemed so positive and I couldn't believe my luck until she started talking. She was great until then. I agreed with everything she said until the moment she opened her mouth. was a big fight. What's that? was a big fight. Her first point was that these prophecies of Daniel were too accurate to be taken seriously. They were too accurate to be taken seriously. And the old say, you know, the old sort of mantra, most scholars, I love that, eh? most scientists believe in evolution. Most scientists say that climate changes you. Most scholars <laughs> conclude. Whenever I hear that, most, I always think you were straining at something there. And here she is. Most scholars, she said, conclude that Daniel wasn't written by Daniel after all. It wasn't written in Babylon after all. And it wasn't written in the 6th century BC after all. In fact, it was written somewhere in Israel by an unknown scribe in the 2nd century BC in order to encourage the Jews who were being persecuted by Antichius Epiphanes in 176 BC. Now, if that is the case, 
Then what we have in our grasp as we hold the book of Daniel was uh, is nothing short of lies, deception and fraud. And if the book of Daniel was written in this way for that purpose, then I for one have to doubt the authenticity of the scriptures, the morals of the of God, or the existence of God, and the sanity of Jesus, because he also quotes from Daniel, naming him Daniel as well. So that phrase that she said, these were written at some other time, completely destroys Christianity for me. So now that lady, what that lady had to say about the rest of it, I will never know because I, I knocked it off at that point. I thought, well, like, you got nothing to say to me. If you don't believe that Daniel's prophecy was a prophecy, then why are you doing 10 weeks on Daniel's prophecy? That's, uh, that's what I thought. Well, you know, the lady is confused. So I, I thought, after her opening remarks, I don't know what she's got to say. It would be a contradiction in terms. Uh, so I never had her on long enough to find out. Maybe she was going to say, oh, we joking. No, maybe she said most. <laughs> maybe she said most scholars, but I don't. Yeah. Uh, no, and I've never been able to find it since to find out. So maybe I did jump the gun a bit. I'm the poor soul. I've uh, sort of uh, misrepresented her in the in the meeting. No, does but let me ask you the question: Does accurate prophecies disqualify them from being prophecies? That's the that's the that's the the guess of what she said. You know, this lady also said that the level of accuracy uh, in Daniel's prophecies were unusual in the Bible. Prophecies, she said, in the Bible were normally more vague <coughs> than that. You know, well, I don't know about you, but I completely disagree uh, with the claim she makes concerning the vagueness of prophecies in the scriptures. And so I thought, I don't know where I am, I've got a little question mark there for us to consider. You know, I thought we just, for the night, I thought we just list a number of very clear, unambiguous, accurate prophecies, just to put our minds at rest. Because, you know, it's no good us going into Daniel's prophecy thinking, oh, this is a little bit too clear for me. You know, I can't believe this. This must have been written after. So it's no. So it's best for us to to see if there are prophecies in the Scripture that are clear and unambiguous to put our minds at rest. And I just just chosen them, but that relate to our Lord. You know, I think it's it's lovely to see them. Do you know that um, there are so many prophecies from the Old Testament to the New about Jesus, His coming, His life his death, his resurrection, that if you could take just eight of them, just eight prophecies, and there are loads more, dozens more, if you take eight of them, for one person to fulfill eight prophecies in, in, in oneself, the proportion, or the ratio, or whatever the thing is, this is this, uh, this one man has written. He says, "If you took Texas, you will state of Texas 
and you poured do silver dollars on it and until it was this deep and if you flew over it by night and threw a black dollar out into the dark and then shook it a bit the probability of finding that your first go is huge and the probability of one person fulfilling eight prophecies is the same as if one person would find that in one go blindfold. Put a blindfold on. Just in case he got lucky. But can you see how? Can you see how? You know, for Jesus, for these all these prophecies to be fulfilled in Jesus mm. is incredible, incredible. Or it's just scriptural. No one done. I just said that as a, a thing. Now, I suppose, let's look at his birth, which we will, we will do Matthew chapter 1, and then read a couple of verses. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his, Mary mother, his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Now we know that it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 7. It was written... 800 years before the event. I want you to notice three things. First of all, the mother of Jesus. You know, according to the Hebrew word for virgin, right now there are two Hebrew words for virgin, and Isaiah has chosen one, and the one that he has chosen, if you had a, an amplified Bible on you, you'd find that the amplified Bible will draw out the full meaning of the Hebrew word virgin. And it says Jesus, the mother of Jesus, must be young, unmarried, and of marriageable age. And there we find the exact person in Mary. She must be young, unmarried, of a marriageable age, and of course a virgin. No wonder um, Matthew to take all the ambiguity out of uh, the Hebrew word for virgin, uses the Greek word for virgin, which is the word parthenos, which, is, which means a virgin. Someone who has never known a man. So, you know, with the two words, the, two, the Hebrew word for virgin and the Greek word for virgin, as you match them up, you get the perfect picture of Mary. Notice also the words of Isaiah are referred to as spoken by 
God himself. This is God's word. This is God's message to the world. You know, we, in, if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, his message to the world was that the seed of a woman would bruise or be an enemy of Satan and would bruise his head as he would bruise its seed. The seed of a woman. Now we've dealt a, a number of times with the virgin birth. But it is so exciting. It's so thrilling to know that God at the very beginning prophesied the seed of the woman. Not the seed of the human family. Not the seed of the man. As is normal in the Old Testament. But the seed of the woman will be the one. Then of course we have Isaiah who tells us that it is a young unmarried woman marriageable age and a virgin and then lo and behold 800 years later and there is no way that this could be doctored as a report because the, the New Testament was actually translated into Greek 200 years before Christ was born and whoever did that took the Hebrew word virgin and used Parthenos as the Greek word for virgin. So we were expecting, whether we were reading in Hebrew or whether we were reading in Greek, we are reading, we are expecting a woman who had never been touched by a man to be the mother of Messiah. And that's an amazing prophecy. And always the third thing I want you to notice is the definite article. That Mary was not a virgin, but she was the virgin. She was the one that God has chosen before the foundation of the world. In the same way that God chose um, Jeremiah while he was still in the womb. Paul, before he was born. You and I, before the world began. Then he chose this woman, this particular virgin, in order to be the mother of his dear son. I find that extremely spectacular. And, uh, or quite spectacular and extremely accurate. And very, very, very specific. Now secondly, Matthew chapter 2. Now Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Anyway, I should have done that all that. I don't know why he didn't do all that. Anyway, Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it says after he's born now, in Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east. They came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. That's a verse they've never ever been able to understand. I don't know about you, but why should Jerusalem be troubled? That the Messiah has been born. I, I don't understand that at all. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ, where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it was written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of, Judea, of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Israel. Well, of course, that's a direct quote, this time not from Isaiah, but from another great prophet, the prophet Micah. 
And this sets not the motherhood of Christ, but the birthplace. The scene of Christ's birth. And it was so precise that the chief priests and the scribes were able to point Herod to the exact spot where Messiah was to be born. Taking Micah's prophecy, they said, look, it's going to be you. They put a pin in the map of the birthplace of Christ. Now, another thing I can't understand is why they didn't go tearing up to the place to find out where he was. This was who they'd been waiting for. This is who they're still waiting for. And they knew where he was to be born. They put a pin in the spot. Notice it's Bethlehem of Judah or Judea. You know, that's the way it's described in the book of Ruth. Bethlehem of Judea. You know, not some small little town in the north of Israel as critics would uh, would try and tell us oh this was a Bethlehem up there in just, just by Galilee no this was in Judah says you says everywhere this was in Judah no one um, get into Bethlehem to give birth to her son was a miracle in and of itself because we know that Mary lived in Nazareth in Galilee and uh, it's quite a, a distance for a pregnant woman to walk. Joseph lived there. That's where the family lived. So really speaking, they were living in the wrong place if her son was to be the Messiah. He was up there and Judy, uh, Bethlehem was down here. And there was 40, 50, perhaps even 60 miles of rough terrain in between. And Mary was just about to give birth. Now how was she going to get from there to here? Now we've got the prophecy that the virgin shall conceive and so she does. But we've also got the prophecy that the, the baby would be born in Bethlehem. So how on earth did that come about? Well again, a decree comes from Caesar Augustus you know, and uh, I love the way that man's history is but a working out of God's prophetic plan as I told you earlier Hitler hastened the return of the Jews he thought that he was fighting against God but he was actually promoting the plan the prophetic plan of God and here again Caesar no, here he is ruling the roughshod over the, the people of the Jews. And he wants their money from him because he wants to go and attack Britain. That's what it's all about. So he sets this great taxation. You know, and it's a taxation that is recorded on the walls of a Roman temple in Turkey. So you can go and read about it. Those of you that go to Turkey and all these different exotic places, you can read about this uh, taxation on the walls of a temple there. In fact, there were actually three great taxations, and this is the second one. Now, the problem is, when you read the, the wall, you find that this happened, this taxation, went out four years before the birth of Christ. Four years. You know, but such was the anger of the Jews. It reminded me of Margaret Thatcher this. Because you remember, for those of us that can remember way back in the 70s, 
she tried to bring the pole tax in. You know, and she opened such a can of worms that this country nearly went to pot over it. And of course she had to abandon the poll tax. Well, when Caesar gave his taxation, you know, they were up in arms in Jerusalem. No, we didn't want, we're not going to pay him all this money. And there was this great big um, uh, furore about the poll, uh, the poll tax that they were supposed to be paying. And you know when protests were made and representation to Rome was made and by the time that it was all settled and by the time it was reinforced and by the time the official tax collectors had worked their way eastward to Palestine there was exactly enough of a delay for the natural course of events to take place. So when the enrollment was enforced upon Judea, it was the exact time for Mary to bring birth to her child. This is what Dr. Mel do. I don't know if he's got any relation to a Victor, but um, he is, uh, he's got a, a better grip on it than Mel. This is what he says. Neither Mary nor Caesar, nor the Roman tax collectors, did the time in nor were they in charge of affairs. But the God who rules the world behind the scenes had his hands on the wheel. And he literally moved the peoples of this world and timed everything to the very day that Mary and Joseph got to Bethlehem in the nick of time. That Jesus, the chosen Messiah, might be born in the right place, designated by the infallible finger of prophecy. What a wonderful quote that is. And beautiful. Now then, very quickly, we go on. Because not only is it in the birth represented in the prophecies of Christ, but also the death. I put all this one up. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, cast in lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Thirty pieces of silver, the price of a slave, the price placed on the blood of Christ by Judas the son of perdition. You know it's a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 11 that I said to them if it is agreeable to you give me my wages if not refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver and the Lord said to me throw it to the potter the, that princely price that they set on me. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the pot. Now we know that. That's so familiar to us. That's so familiar that these that Judas having um, realized the gravity of his actions took the money back. It was the price of blood so they wouldn't accept it back into the treasury. So he threw it at their feet. And they used it to buy the potter's field where they could bury it. It's, it's incredible. Um, and of course, we have Psalm 22, 
you want know, the actual description of the goings on at the foot of the cross as Jesus suffered above it I can count all my bones he says they look and stare at me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots how incredibly accurate and unambiguous Psalm 22 how long ago was that? that was a thousand years ago and here it is happening right in front of his eyes he's looking down and seeing them and who would have known that they picked up his cloth his robe and realised how much love and care and talent, skill had gone into making that weaving it from the top to the bottom no seam in it at all Mary must have spent months making that garment for her son I know even the Roman soldiers thought we can't spoil this we can't cut this up into four pieces yes the other stuff his shoes and his tunic and all that yes let's, let's spread that about cut a bit of this off and that divide it among ourselves but then we come to this the prize and what do they do they cast lots who would have ever thought that that could happen and yet a thousand years before it did God said that's exactly what's going to happen and Jesus saw that he saw that taking place now I, to be honest I could go on and on I've probably gone on and on already anyway but I could go on and on giving out specific accurate and unambiguous fulfilled prophecies concerning the Lord so the term too accurate too accurate to be taken seriously is quite amusing if it weren't so alarming and so deceitful you know yes there are and we will come up against them there are prophecies that are difficult to interpret of course there are especially when we come to the ap apocalyptic books like Daniel and uh, the revelations of course there will be things that we won't really be able to get a grip on they are apocalyptic and therefore they are mysterious you know they are intended to be mysterious you know and um, I believe that there are there is a timetable for us to come to understand certain things you know when we be able to see things happening that revelations would tell us you know there are things that we talk about next week uh, that will enlighten us and perhaps wouldn't have enlightened us 150 years ago because we wouldn't have had no understanding of what the prophet was saying 150 years ago but because technology has moved on we will be able to understand it and there will be things that will be only understandable in the future to us because we think well how on earth could that happen and then someone will invent something and think that's how on earth something will happen you know I think you know when I was in Israel the first time in 1980 the recent uh, trip that we went on um, uh, you know we were talking about how on earth all the people in the earth could see the glory of the Lord together you know you see the glory of the Lord together. how on earth can that happen but then when you went to Israel every building had an aerial on it you know and our leader said you know that's how people are going to see the glory of the Lord together because the cameras are going to be there they're going to fill them on the Mount of Olives 
and every because every tent we went to had an area stuck up to it. You know, they might have been starving, they might have been thirsting, but they had they had the chase on. You know, they had all the business on. But then I think to yourself, no, that can't be, man. You can't always be caught in a caravan, uh, um, a television run with you. But we do now, don't we? You know, that's the stance now. That's how, it, that's how youngsters are today. That's the new generation. And one day you'll be looking like that and they go, wow, somebody just landed on the Mount of Olives. And everybody in the world will see it in exactly the same time. Because you see, once it's on there, you'll be saying, you know, you'll be sharing it with your friend in the street who's in bed. And they'll go, whoop. That's how it, you know, and we wouldn't have thought of that even 20 years ago. But we can think about it now. So as technology advances, so does the, the probability of our understanding the book of Revelations and Daniel and things like that come, become more uh, advanced in our thinking. So yes, there are prophecies that are difficult to interpret. But otherwise, God has graciously given us an up-to-date satnav that will take us from Babylon right up to glory. And we'll be very grateful that we've learned to switch it on. I read a quote this week that um, years ago people used to get from A to B, you know, from year to Spain using a road map. And they said now young people they can't get out of uh, McDonald's without a satnav. And that's how and that's how it is. We depended upon a satnav. You know, we don't you don't learn the route anymore, do you? You know, we were in the cottage up there last week. I couldn't get there now without the satnav. And then we were back and forth, back and forth, but I, I wasn't looking at the surroundings, I was looking at, that's how I drove. One eye on there, and one eye on the front, and I've only got one. <laughs> We'd be very grateful that we've learned to use the satna, the prophetic satna of God's word. And I, for one, am quite excited by what we're going to be looking at. I've been looking at uh, the book of Isaiah today, and... Uh, it's an amazing story of uh, reconciliation and, and all the rest of it. But underneath, lying underneath, is the amazing system of God's prophetic word. It's absolutely incredible. So I'm excited about it. I hope you are. I hope I know I know where to go on a bit. And uh, you know I like my introductions. You know, I still got a bit more introduction to do. So um, we'll continue. <laughs> we'll continue with that as we go along. Thank you very much.